Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val, here again, and as always, joined by my good friend and colleague, the director for the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Good to see you again, sir. Hi, Jack. Good to see you, too. But let me just say, I thought you did a terrific job yesterday talking about the latter chapters of Augustine's Confessions. I wish I had recorded that because I thought it was so good. Uh, thank, thank you for doing that. Thank you, sir. Checks in the mail. Checks in the mail. <laughs> or maybe, well, my, or maybe I, my, my check from you is in the mail, but regardless. <laughs> well, I, I honestly thought as I was watching the students listen uh, and think through the things you were talking about, about memory and the importance of memory, and uh, I saw their... I saw their light, eyes light up and their light bulbs go off and heads explode and all sorts of good things. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was a terrific, uh, terrific time. Yeah, you live so, for those well moments. Yeah. Especially yeah. around here. Those are the moments you live for. Absolutely. Well, I'm grateful for that. And I'm just glad that we were able to do such a thing here at the Center for Western Studies. I hope uh, the listeners will pass the word that, uh, that the Gap Year program is available uh, for young people and that, um, and that we would love to have their young people applying for next fall. Indeed. It's and, a good thing to do. And thank you, sir. Yeah, sure. Well, last week um, I came in with a bit of a frustration and a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a conundrum on my mind that I wanted to verbalize. And apparently this week it's your turn. <laughs> apparently something's been bugging you and has been on your mind. I I am a little concerned about a, an issue um, that has, should be close to the hearts of, of any worshiper, I think, any Christian worshiper. Um I, I one of my you know I, I teach this fellows program, and uh, one of the fellows is writing a paper for me uh, on uh, uh, worship styles and music in the church and 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 all that the sort of cultural uh, right. uh, wars maybe you might say right. that had gone on for many decades now in the church about between what they call traditional and, and contemporary styles of worship. A and very calm civil discussion. Call, yes, right. On, yeah. on, yes, right. <laughs> lots, of, lots of level heads on both sides. Oh man, I, I heard somebody say one time when the devil fell from heaven he landed in the choir loft. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's where the real Bring, problems in the church uh, brings a happen. whole Brings a whole new meaning to preaching to the choir. but. <laughs> Yes. Anyways, <laughs> well, he sent me. He said he had this this great article uh, he wanted me to read in, in preparation for his his paper, you know. And uh, so he sent it to me, and I read it, and it just reminded me of some things that I've been concerned about lately myself, seeing in several churches. I, in a nutshell, it seems to me that we have these debates about worship music. Because of the fact that we're looking at music the wrong way, okay. what I mean, and maybe we're looking at worship the wrong way too. Um, sure. What I mean is this: you know, when people say we have to have um, a discussion about our worship experience, I hear that phrase tossed about. Right. And when I hear worship experience, it seems to me it changes the meaning of worship. Wor- worship is a is a thing that we do. That we offer to God, right? right? Worship is something that we offer back to God in thankfulness for what He's done for us. It is right, and it, as the old prayer book says, it is meet and right so to do. We're right. we're supposed to offer Him our our worship. But when you talk about a worship experience, it changes the focus from our doing something for Him to our doing something for us. 
Right, sure. You know, we're having an experience when we worship, or the experience of worshiping focuses anyway on the uh, the experience that we're having. And it strikes me that we preach from the pulpit the Christian, the right and true Christian doctrine that we are to take up our crosses daily and follow Him, right? So that means we're dying to ourselves. The whole point of the Christian Christian uh, walk is to learn to be self-sacrificial, f- to love God and to love our neighbors. And uh, when we when we preach that we are going to have to to uh, take up our crosses and follow God, and then the next thing we say is, and by the way, what kind of worship experience do you want to have right it seems like it's contradictory to me does that make sense it 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 does it's almost like you know here's a place where you come and you give of to god by the way do you want fries with that That, well it feels a little like that it seems a little silly but that's what it feels like to me it feels i could i can see like the i feel like i can understand in part the frustration with this type of discussion i can't understand the depths of it because i know this is very close to you because you used to for the record, Hodges used to be a worship director for years at a local right. church was, around here. Yeah, I was. That's right. I did ten years at one church. I did two or three years at two or three other churches. So right. I've I've had probably fifteen or so uh, years of experience. Right. So this is a uh, not an outs- this is not an outsider mumbling about this. This is somebody who's been on the inside as long at heart. And as as long as we're being self uh, revealing here, I was a symphony conductor for. 20 years right and and that's where my training is so when i went into music in the church i was doing it in in a sense as a secondary thing that wasn't my initial uh, project you know to study music uh was for the orchestra co- concerts and the, for opera performances that sort of thing uh and so when i went into the church i had a, a kind of classical you know uh orchestral background that mm. i that i brought to that <clears throat> God used it, I think, there, and I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying that that's where I really came from. So I had a different, maybe, opinion about... When you're when you're choosing music for a concert, it's different than when you're choosing music for a worship service. Sure, yeah, sure. And, and one of the main things is, and I'll get back to you, you let you sure. finish your point in a second. Um, one of the main things, difference, is um, you are... Uh, you, there's this element that that the music has to be in such a format that the congregation can use it to offer their their worship to God. Right? right. You don't have to choose to to play a Stravinsky ballet or a you know a, a, a Beethoven symphony based on the audience's uh, in, engagement with it on on any kind of active level. They're receiving sure. it certainly, certainly, but they don't have to actually sing it back themselves, right? So there's an added, very important element to music in the church that has to be considered. And so, when you're looking at choosing uh, this song or that song, one of the things you're thinking about is not so much is it a great piece of music, but is it a great piece of music that can be sung in a, as as a congregation, you know? Mm-hmm. But Back to your point. Right. I was going to say, because it's, I can't, I probably don't know the full depths of the frustration, but I can understand the frustration about something like this for anybody, really, because on the one hand, yes, when we talk of it in terms of worship experience, your worship experience, the impetus seems to be on the worshiper rather than the one you're worshiping. Like right. th- There is that switch there. On the other hand, and this doesn't necessarily like contradict that, it's just like in addition to that, worship 
is an experience. Like yes. it's something you're actually there and you you do it and it's something you're a part of. And so that is an element that some people, oh, a lot of people, I say some people, probably all people feel like has to be taken into consideration. You know, your experience of the thing because there is something about you know, the the beauty of the music or the beauty of the offering that can set your heart in the right place to worship God properly or something like that. I'm not sure. saying anything new or controversial, but it almost feels like how to balance. I don't know if balance is the right word. This is really hard. Mm-hmm. How, to, how to figure out what is the proper relation or proportion between acknowledging your experience of it, but then recognizing that your experience is not the point. Right. Right. It's like it's not that it's non existent and therefore it has to be considered, but even in considering it, remembering it's not really the ultimate point. Right. And we live in a day when everything seems to be judged on the um on the on the number of likes it gets. Sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? Sure. I mean uh how many how many people buy the product how many people uh are willing to uh to attend the concert or right, to right, write a good worship review, service write a good review of it write a good review exactly exactly uh and uh that i think i think that that is so tempting for the church to let that bleed over into what's chosen in the church service in order to get the maximum number of you know happy happy parishioners happy happy people um and and part of that i think is the 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 question of are we designing the worship service to offer something to god or are we designing the worship service to be attractive to uh two groups of people first the christians themselves mm, right. but then those who might come who are not believers in other words there's an evangelistic aspect to the worship service in some people's minds right uh and so shouldn't we be choosing music based partly on uh on their preferences on what what they're what's popular today you know i actually heard a very solid reformed uh pastor say to me one time many years ago uh, that it doesn't matter what style the music is in as long as the words are Christian. It doesn't make any difference. Mm. You just pick the style that the people like the best. Mm. And I thought at the time, that's, that's wrong. That's simply wrong. There's, there's, you're not interested in what the people like. That's not your first interest, you know. Uh, and what it what it said what it said to me was the content is important, but the way it's said doesn't matter. Right, and that's See? that's uh, putting it that way. That's foolish. It right? seems like it to me. Just got to look at our political discourse today and recognize that you can say something that maybe is accurate, but if you say it poorly or terribly, it doesn't matter how accurate it is. Well, that's right. That's right. And we we understand that there's an art to art. Mm-hmm. There's an art to music. There's an art to painting. There's an art to uh, 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 poetry. And uh, when I say art, you know, I mean literally the skill at being able to craft that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when you're crafting a film or a, a song or a, you know, a Gothic cathedral, doesn't make any difference. Um, the the art of it is the is the ability to craft the form of it and you're crafting the form of it to be in the shape of something symbolically metaphorically 
uh, to somehow engage with the content that you're trying to get across. You see, yeah. So uh, we we teach the wasteland here, Eliot's wasteland, and one of the marvels of the wasteland, the poem, the wasteland, is that he's talking about fragmentation in a society, and he's writing a poem in the that that draws on so many fragments of other uh, books mm. that. It brings to mind fragmentation in its form, right? Not just in its content, but as it's sewn together, you feel the fragmentation of a culture. At the same time that he's telling you, our culture is fragmented, right? Just brilliant. It is genius. That's the way it's supposed to work. Well, I, I I think the same way about the music that we craft in any part of our musical lives, but especially in the worship service. Mm. So. Why would you think that it would be a good idea to toss aside any kind of, you know, decision-making, aesthetic decision-making process on the form of the music as long as the words, as long as the content is, uh, is, is good? Right. It seems like it underestimates the power of music to me. It does, and probably, in some ways, cuts the people short on some way by that. It robs robs them of something. It certainly does. That's a great point, because what happens is it may be attractive to this generation, Mm. but then they have that only to teach their children. And art is actually, as you would rightly know, we teach here at the center, art is actually a, a long history of all sorts of different artists that goes way back. Mm. Uh, we start teaching in Homer for a reason. You know, we right. start with Homer for a reason. Well, um, if, you're, if your music is, you know what C.S. Lewis said is, anything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Right. And so if your music is attempting to be contemporary for the sole purposes of of being attractive to this generation, Mm. the next generation is not going to be attracted to that, see? Sure. But that's what they're going to grow up on as musical food, if you want to think of it that way. So, you know, in your church experience growing up, you learn songs in nursery school, or nursery classes, and and, in children's church, and so on. And But also, you sit in the worship services with your family, right? And what it is that they sing and and play and so on in the in the worship service becomes the form that you re, in which you receive through which I should say you receive the the experience of being with God right. Mm. Um, so if you don't in, give them something of the past, then they're going to think that it's only for the present, and then when they become Christians, it'll be the sort of um, what do we have in the 60s, the kind of generation gap yeah. thing that happened? You know, the the old people wanted to listen to Perry Como and the new people wanted to listen to Jefferson Airplane or whatever. Right. And, you know, they didn't have much in common. Or the Beatles. Right. And they didn't have much in common. It's a funny thing. Just a little side issue here. It's a funny thing that the that the year before the Beatles really hit it big... Mm-hmm. Do you know who the the biggest the the top of the charts was? I can't remember. It's Rosemary Clooney. Oh, really? George Rosemary. Clooney's mom. I think so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Rosemary Clooney was a great crooner with Bing Crosby, and uh, you've seen White Christmas, maybe the movie yeah, White yeah, Christmas. Yeah. She's the girl lead in White Christmas. She's the singer that Bing Crosby falls in love with. Well, in you know 1960 or 61 or so. She was her songs were the the top sellers in the in the world in the country anyway. Right. The Beatles came along, 
we never listened to her again. That was the end of it. It, it was all now going to be Beatles and people like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles that, that were going to carry the day. Right. Um, and it was a huge change in style, right? right. Change, huge in style. But, but uh, even though the Beatles actually were very lyric and very, uh, I mean, uh, they, they wrote ballads and things yeah. that... Uh, uh, Paul McCartney wrote some things that probably Rosemary Clooney might have sung even, but it's a sure. generation gap, in other words. Sure. Um, okay, so so what you your point a minute ago is really good, I think, because it actually cuts the next generation off from its own heritage sure. before they're able to know that they're losing anything. So is there a place for tradition in uh, the worship service? It becomes, I think, clearer when you think, the goal of the worship service is to offer something to God and not simply to uh, draw people to the worship service. Mm. So if there's a kind of evangelistic aspect to the worship service in, in people's minds, it's more understandable that they want to do something more contemporary and have a more informal feel and all those sorts of things. Because that's how the generations are now. The last few generations are very informal and and so on. I think the youngest ones actually are rebelling against that a little now, don't you? Yeah, see? I, I feel like there are some in the younger side of the millennial generation that are actually are running towards like super high church, yeah, like old yes. school lit- liturgical church. I heard about a church on the on the west coast that was uh, really high uh, uh, Anglican liturgy mm-hmm. and was so uh, profound that people were lining up. Young people were lining mm-hmm. up to get in. There weren't enough seats for everybody, and they had to actually stand in the back and listen. There, yeah, there is. There's, so there is a pressure. I'll push there, that. There way. is something to that. Like a friend of mine named uh, Brian is a, a worship guy. He does worship stuff. He's a musician first, really, mm-hmm. honestly. But he knows he does worship and things like that, and he definitely is versed in all the contemporary stuff. But he also understood the importance of like more liturgical style or more liturgical structure to things. So when he would like run a worship service, it was all contemporary music, but he would have more like scripture reading and response uh-huh. stuff and try and have an actual structure to what was going on because he understood the importance of it. But I, I'm probably gonna like. Uh, uh, sound really hipsterish when I do this, so I apologize. But <laughs> That's right. The only other example I could think of that I think was very significant would be like uh, David Crowder Band. Was when I remember I never listened to them because they were like the epitome of praise and worship, and I grew up traditional in the bad way, traditional and snotty. Like you know, it's like oh, ah, yeah, you right. know, all that praise and worship emotionalism, blah, you know, right, whatever. Right. And so I never really listened to them until a friend of mine played like an album of theirs called Church Music, which like had 20 songs on it or something like that. But I was astounded by it because they were playing in a contemporary style or like a contemporary style old songs oh, yeah. like Hail Gladdening Light or something like that or songs from like the Eastern Orthodox Church. Huh. And all the songs, I realized this after listening to it a bunch of time, every song ends and actually flows into the next song. And then the last song on the album, the way it fades out, the sounds it's making is actually how the first song starts. So oh, it wow. actually is so all completely complete. It's like it's all connected together. <laughs> yeah, I see. And, I was, and they, like one of the last, the last album they made was called uh, a, a Mass in C Major, The Happiest of Keys, I think it was called. But it's a mass. It has like a deus ere and a whole thing like that. But it's like in the, their David uh, David Crowder band. I almost said Dave Matthews. I apologize. David Crowder <laughs> band style. So, yeah, there is this sense of this desire for not necessarily abandoning the particular musical instrumentation and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but 
grappling, uh, gra grappling, I was sorry to say grappling, I meant latching back onto sort of that old traditional thing because mm -hmm. there is some kind of meat there that maybe they are getting otherwise. And for me, I'm like, I appreciate, I, I appreciate the effort. And that sounds really condescending, but I don't mean it that way. I mean, I really do. I like that there are people who are in that world who look and say, we need this, mm -hmm. right? We need this. And I feel like, actually, Hodges, maybe we should clarify. Is this going to turn into a style versus style discussion? Like, is it better to have orchestra or is it better to have a band? Or is that, do you think the issue is actually something deeper than that? I, I think it's far deeper than that, but I won't say that it doesn't have anything to do with that because I do think that styles have limitations. And so um, if you think about a style of, of music, say reggae music or rock music or mm -hmm. jazz music or something like that. Country music. Country music, exactly. Country music, rap music. There are certain characteristics to that style, and if you don't have those elements in it, it's really not that style anymore. It's something else, maybe, or something right. new altogether, or whatever. And one of the one of the elements that you find in popular music is a kind of rock beat that goes. Right, it's on the off beat. I think it is. Yeah, one and two and three and four and one and two. They call that a back beat. Back back in the fifties, they called it a back beat. Mm -hmm. Well. Um, that that's part and parcel of a particular style of music, see, and so if you if you want to say if you want to limit yourself mm. to that style, if you want to say that that style is worthwhile, you have to be willing to limit yourself to those characteristics. And what I want is for us to have in our in music for a worship service. I'd like us to be free of to explore all the various kinds of combinations of sound that music is. See. And what I keep hearing as an argument is that if we want to attract a certain kind of people, if people who are interested into popular music want to come to church, then you need to play the music in that style for them. Mm. And that's why what I mean I have problems with about the style. I'm not against that style. I'm only against the idea that you have to squeeze whatever you're going to do into that style uh, and limit it uh, in order to speak intelligently or comprehensively, co comprehendingly to the uh, to the people. Hmm. But really, it has a lot more to do with my my concern has a lot more to do with the hearts of our, our worshipers and what we're what we're offering is a a reflection of the hearts of our worshipers. See, do you think because some people would this, this is interesting to me because like some people would um, say that well then. Let's just have just nothing but like an orchestral style, right? And then that's it. Now, orchestra has way more instruments and maybe could do more things than, say, a rock band alone can. Okay. But then sure. people could argue that an orchestra is its own style, that while it's bigger than others, there are things that it does that jazz music can't do, but there's things jazz does that an orchestra on its own couldn't do or something like that. Well, I suppose, that, that, I suppose that's true. That, that's, an, that's an argument. And what I'm thinking sure. is... Do you think I was about to ask you? Do you think the solution is? But I'm not going to ask you what you think the solution is because I'm yeah. not sure you know. Yeah. Uh, if you worry about, do you what do you think of the idea of a worship service that's I'm not sure what the right word is mixed, blended, or something like that, where it kind of blends things together, where there's like 
traditional old songs and then maybe a traditional song or style done in a new style and then a new song and then like that's done in a contemporary style or a new song done in orchestral style. Like, and it all is like blended together. Like there is no one single style. There's like multiple styles in one service. Like what do you think of that idea? Well, I suppose it can work. But it's it's a difficult thing to pull off. And part of it is because of the way we define the things you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. You, if you, What you just said was to describe, to, to uh, in a sense, differentiate between a rock band, which I assume means, you know, keyboard, guitar, bass, drums kind of thing, sure. and maybe a couple of other instruments. Sometimes you throw in a violin or a sure. brass section, you know, a horn section or something like that. Uh, but that that thing that's an inst- that's instrumentation uh, that you call what we call a rock band, and the, and you're pitting against that this idea of an orchestra which has of course bassoons and weird things like that that you don't usually find in a rock right. band. English okay, horns. English horn, right? There's another thing you could say is the organ organ music. A lot of churches use nothing but an organ, right? Yeah. Some churches use no instruments at all, right? Just voices. So you have different kinds of, of instruments, but I wouldn't say that the that the instrumentation is the same thing as the style, mm. because a rock band is built obviously to play rock music, but it's the rock music that's the style, not the instrumentation. You could actually have a guitarist and a bass player uh, and a and a drummer. Um, and a keyboard player, and they play some very sophisticated classical pieces of music. You know, right? Um, so it's not—it's not the—it's not, not usually meant to do that, right? That's not what we usually think of when we think of a rock band. But sure. the instruments actually are not the same thing as the style. In the same way, the orchestra plays—the typical orchestra plays in styles that are as far apart as centuries yeah right not just i mean what we call popular music really is only about 80 years old right right well the uh and and within that is a huge number of different styles you know the the chuck berry kind of rock rock and roll of the 50s and elvis presley and so on is quite different than the kind of uh rap music that you get from you know yeah, the or the, even like the, the funk metal of like funk metal of the 70s and, and 80s or whatever sure that's right there are hu- and and there's reggae music and which which is i guess maybe more folk music but there's um you know industrial dance music yeah. <laughs> there's there's dubstep there's yeah. rock and roll there's there's a chip, pop chip tuning is a thing now yeah that's right and and there's and there's the sort of funk ba- bands of the 60s and 70s you know and there's all sorts of different styles and they're fascinating they're delightful and a lot of fun and they're not all the same but they have some similar characteristics actually right. But the orchestra could play, you know, uh, Handel's Messiah score or um, a, uh, you know, a 20th century uh, Philip Glass piece. That, and the two of them are of no, almost no relation right. <laughs> to each other, right? Or, or They're a big, far, or, farther apart than any pop songs. Or a big play. band number. Could, they do often play behind a big band, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so the instruments themselves are not equated, in my mind, with the style. And to, it's, it's, it's hard enough for me to think of a band uh, equated with a style because it can play, the same bass player can play in a funk band and in a rock band and a, you know, in a, right. a reggae band. But 
in this in the same way the orchestra is like that except in spades it it has the ability to it's very flexible it can go in any direction uh that you can think of including playing along with a rock song so uh so so then the question isn't instrumentation the question is the style that we associate with those instruments right and i guess do you think the question is um what style would be most conducive to worship or do you think the question's bigger than that I think that we think of style as personal preferences. Mm. I like reggae and you like jazz and he likes, you know, rap or something. I'm just making things up here. And and the uh and and so then we think in our minds that those things, those pockets of preferences are so sacrosanct mm. that they can't be adjusted. Right. And and so if you want to try and reach this people, you need to play this kind of music. If you want to play we reach this people, you gotta play this kind of music. Right. It seems to me that that's another example of the cart before the horse kind of. We're putting things in the wrong uh, direction or wrong uh, uh, order because <clears throat> um what I sometimes need as a as a as an unbeliever in the world, what I need is something that is altogether different than my experience. Mm-hmm. I need somebody to come into my life and say, "There is this God who really loves you and cares, you know, about what happens to you, and has died in your place." And and there's a whole culture that's wrapped up in that, uh, the worship of this God, that will be foreign to you to begin with. But as you get into it you will find that it's rich and profound and so on. So the idea that we have to somehow make the gospel palatable to the people Uh, rubs me the wrong way. I want it to be the other way around. I want the church to actually be so unusual and, and rare that people say, huh, I never thought of that before. And I'm talking about styles now. Okay. They, They go to the church and they think, Gee whiz, I've never heard music like this before. I'll tell you a quick story. Sure. I had a student at Crichton. You remember where we were, mm-hmm. you worked at Crichton? You worked at Crichton. I, I did before you. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had a student tell me one time that she worked in a, in a diner or something, and she met three or four Christians there on the staff. She was not a believer. And, uh, and, and they would talk to her about God, and they would play her their music, their Christian music. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, I can quote it to you almost word for word. She said, I think I would have become a Christian three or four years earlier if they had shown me any music that I hadn't already heard done better by secular artists. Mm. See, And I think we're trying to imitate what they already know in this style. But the assumption underneath it is that the style doesn't matter. It's just a a way of kind of attracting you to the gospel. And it's the gospel that's going to... Well, there's a truth in that. The gospel is the only thing that's going to that's going to uh, convert you. Um, you can't say, because I like Mozart opera, I'm going to become a Christian. Right. I'm not arguing that at all. But she was looking for something altogether different, some, something new, something, something that she hadn't heard before. And she could listen to her favorite you know, bands and artists and so on sure. uh, in popular music, and then she could hear their music and hear how they were doing bad imitations. I remember one... Oh, I'm not going to remember who said it, but somebody other than I said... Um, the, the evangelical church can do anything the world can do only five years later and worse. Right. right. I remember, I remember well, you that's, saying that. Well, that's embarrassing. It is me. embarrassing. In box time, mm-hmm. 
the 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 entire culture recognized that the very best in the in the history of music was going on in the church not in the concert hall they weren't thinking the church is trying to catch up with the concert hall mm-hmm. so there was a time in the past when the church actually was the cutting edge of creative work in terms of music and uh, i think we've lost that position over the last 250 years mm-hmm. So so what do we do? Do we just say, you guys are going to have to like, you know, classical music? Yeah. yeah. <sighs> that doesn't appeal to me either. And you, here's the thing. I hear this sentence all the time, and it doesn't make any difference what the predicate of the sentence is. Um, it, it's the subject of the sentence. It's the problem. I don't feel like I've worshipped unless I hear blank. See? Yeah. And I don't care what you put in the blank there. It's already wrong. In my mind, because if you say I don't feel like I worship unless I hear pop music, you know I don't I don't feel like I've worshipped unless I hear old hymns. Hmm. I don't feel like I've worshipped unless I've heard an orchestral or or a big organ prelude, right? Right. Well, it doesn't matter what hap- what you put in the latter part of that. It's it's about you and your feelings. The whole sentence is about you and your feelings. See, right. and that's what I really have the problem with. It's not style specifically, because styles can be done well or done badly, uh, and I'm all for excellence in whatever style we're doing. But I'm, I'm interested in the notion that we in our worship services are offering our best to God. Mm-hmm. And if we're offering the best that we have to God, then we're going to want to train our people well, and we're going to want them to play their instruments extremely well. We're going to want them to be able to compose songs and arrange songs that are thoughtful theologically and able to be sung by the congregation. Mm-hmm. I'm still haven't gotten into a particular style yet. You can do it in a contemporary style. You can do. I wrote, I I, I wrote a lot of things for church when I was mm-hmm. working at church, and I wrote a, uh, I, I wrote things for guitar and cello. Yeah, you know. And the guitar is a pop instrument for the most part. It's how people use it, right? Well, it's possible to write for the guitar in a way that shows off the guitar for the glory of God, not the not the player or the composer even, but uh, but makes use of mel- melodic lines and harmony and all the elements of music uh, in such a way as to craft a beautiful offering. If I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like it sounds like. It sounds like you're saying, and stop me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you're saying it's not a matter of what instruments you use or whether you've got an orchestra or a, a worship band or whatever it is. It's, one, are you doing excellence? And two, is your composition something that reflects God rather than like, you know, some sort of like, well, this will be a real good hook or something like that. That's, reflects, right. That's right. Because if that is what you're saying, it sounds like what's needed... What's needed for Christian musicians in the church, and we could argue really all Christian artists and musicians in or outside of the church, but specifically for the church, if you're in a worship thing, you need not just good training in your music and its styles and like, you know, if you're going to do like, you know, a contemporary band with like guitars and electric guitars and bass stuff, like, okay, we'll learn how to play those things right. excellently. Right. But it also sounds like you need two other things. You need like deep theological training. Hmm. To understand who this God is that you're worshiping, because how are you going to shape your 
form and content if you don't understand like what you're talking about right sure. if god right. is just a fuzzy good feeling or is just you know well he's this person my grandparents talked about yeah or something like that or you just have a, a sunday school level notion of them which you know might be not very deep then that's going to affect the music poorly all right? right so it seems like it needs to be a deep theological training but there also needs to be a deep historical training on how christians have tried to shape music that's right it calls for an understanding of tradition and a right appreciation for like tradition. the because it's like you, you said like well if she only heard something that's like the the girl from Crichton mm-hmm. uh, she said if she only heard something that sounded different you know or something that sounded different from what she heard and my brain was sitting there thinking what is that what does that mean it's like mm-hmm. you know I mean what's she gonna hear like an instrument she's never heard before or like a chord she's never like what does it mean to hear something you've never heard before yeah well the liturgical structure is something specific to the church that a lot of people, especially like I say of a younger generation, have been disconnected from. So when they run into it, it's like they're stepping into an alien planet. Yeah, you know, like right. so that is there there's that, right? Sure. There's a liturgical structure. So learning about the liturgical structure is good too. Learning like the way that they've tried to shape something, the way Brahms tries to shape his German Requiem or something like that is a way to do it just as much as learning as how a mass is structured or something like That's that. Right. So there needs to be a deep theological training and a deep historical training as well as a deep instrumentation training. Right. It's like that's what you would need the to be. craft of your instrument. If, if you wanted to be a good worship leader, someone who did worship in church right, you would need those three things so you'd know how to shape the music to fit the God that you're trying to worship. Yeah, I guess more than fitting the God, I'd say fit the the words that you're using to worship. So, because the the music becomes the medium through which those words are mm. expressed, right? right? So it's possible it's possible to sing a melody that is crafted to fit the words that is that it's expressing. See? Mm. And that's why I say I'm so reluctant about the limitations of certain kinds of music, because um, there are there are certain rhythms and certain you know drum beats and certain um, I don't know effects, kind of uh, uh, idiomatic uh, ex- uh, effects of bending pitches and coming in late and mm. you know doing syncopated lines and so on that solo singers do in popular music. That uh, that don't translate well, for example, to congregational singing. Mm. You can't, you can't. Not the drum beat so much, but I'm, now I'm talking about the rhythm of the melody. You know, if it's right. all offbeat and it's all kind of full of these idiomatic bends and mm. and expressive notes and so on that the that the, the singers do when they're singing solos, mm. uh, which is understandable when they're singing solos. Um, it, it's difficult to do in the congregation, and and yet if you teach that this is the music that we that you are to express yourself through uh you know you hear this music on the radio and so you want to hear it in church for example because you mm-hmm. found it so moving when you listen to it you know in your own private devotions or whatever on on your CDs or something uh then when you listen to it in church and the entire congregation is trying to sing you know a line that a soloist is used to singing it just doesn't work you right. can't do it you know so i think we all i think whoever may be listening maybe understands this feeling if you've ever been in a contemporary i know i have if you've ever been in like typically contemporary services where yeah. this happens but been in a contemporary service where they play a song that really feels like it was written for a soloist 
That's and right. like the person who's leading the worship, whether they realize it or not, they really get into the song, and so they start singing it like a soloist. And you out there, you're like, you don't, you, you're not sure how to do the ooze or the whatever, or like the way they suddenly randomly add another like, you know, repetition of something you weren't That's expecting, right. That's and right. it creates a kind of disjointedness. So it seems like maybe one of the first sort of things about church music is that there's a place for soloism. Soloism, if I can put it that way. <laughs> there's a place for like the soloist, but there's also, if you're going to get the congregation to sing, then it has to be music that's meant for everybody to be a part of it. Right. That's right. And that's why I think you have to craft, you have to be willing to allow the music to be, how can I put this? It's not easy. You have to be willing to let the the, the text speak to you as a composer about how to craft the sound to express that text. And um, give you an example. I use this example all the time in my lectures. Um, Handel wrote, uh, uh, Every Valley Shall Be Exalted right. for his Messiah uh, oratorio, right? The first tenor aria has, I'll have to sing this now, so oh. spare you guys this. I'm sorry. But he writes... We'll he, edit in post-production. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, maybe I could get a recording of somebody singing it that's good, and I'll stick it in here. But um, he he writes he sings the word he goes every valley every valley shall be exalted right remember yeah. the tune right? right and he goes shall be shall be exalted right. Right. and he keeps going okay. up and up and up. Well, yeah. And you think, well, why on earth would anybody write that? Why don't we just put it to rock music? Every valley shall be exalted. Every valley shall be exalted. It's a very few people don't understand what a treat this is. It's like, <laughs> should do live casting. <laughs> we need a camera. Um, so, but what's the difference between the two of them? Is it, isn't it? I mean, because it's the same text, mm. right? It's exactly the same text. Now, I'm not saying one is good and the other is bad. I'm actually saying one is better than the other. That's all. Okay. See, because you can say the text in the way you, the second way I gave, and maybe the words will be, have meaning. But what Handel did was to write the word exalted. In the phrase of music that is going up and up and up and up and up like that, right? right? What does it mean to be exalted? It means to be lifted up, right? So he says, The crooked straight, the crooked straight, and the rough places plain. Well, it's not by accident. Right. <laughs> right? He's, he's actually doing what the Baroque composers called tone painting. Hmm. He's making the melody... Reflect the meaning of the words. Well, yeah, that's not the only way to do it. Sure. There are 10 million ways that you can make the music reflect the meaning of the words. Bach was the genius at this. Handel was certainly great. But there have been plenty of composers since then that have done the same thing. You mentioned the Brahms Requiem. It's a great piece of music. And all through it, you hear all these great moments where the drama and the depth and the profundity of the words are reflected in the way the harmony works or the way the melody works or how this overlaps with that. It's the craft of composing. It's the mm. art of composing. That's what it's all about. So, it, I mean, and especially when we're talking about trying to convey uh, the meaning of, the, of the, the biblical texts that are being put to music mm. here. Okay. So, <clears throat> if, you, if your mind is going to memorize anything, uh, and you, I, I, 
I listen in my head to whatever song I listen to on Sunday morning. You know, during the week, I, it comes back to me. Sure. It could be a good song, could be a bad song. Wouldn't it be better if it were a good song? Yes. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I listen to Heinz ketchup commercials in my head, and I get really frustrated. <laughs> I don't want to hear that, but it's in there. It's like it's hooked in my brain, is it? So our memories should be mem- thinking about good things. But think about this. The, the, the craft of composition goes out the window when we first say, let's do something in a particular style. Mm. See? So now I'm limited by that style. I have to use that beat, and I have to use these instruments, and I have to use this croony way of singing, whatever it is, that, mm. to fit that style. Because that's the style that people relate to. See, right. now into that into that musical style. Now, not the instruments, but the musical style. I'm going to pour my content. I'm going to pour my my psalm or my right. you know like, my text like or hot lead into a mold or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. And so the the meaning, the depth of the text uh, is actually going to be partly conveyed by the style that it's set in. The the like just like that example we, I gave of Eliot and the. And the poem, the wasteland, right. the the form of the of the poem reflects. <clears throat> excuse me. The form of the poem reflects the meaning of the poem. Right. And so, what I want is for us to be thoughtful enough in whatever instruments we're using, even whatever styles. If we can break free a little bit and have you know a little craftiness within style. Uh, to be able to say what it is that's actually going on and use the music to to convey it. You could, uh, with a lot of popular songs, you could take different words and put them in there and have them still work, mm-hmm. you know? You could take the, the, the text, Jesus died on the cross for me, okay. which may be the most profound thing that a human being can say out loud. Maybe. Okay. That's, that substitutionary death that saved my soul could very well be the most profound thing I can say. It reveals the love of God. Okay, I can say that in a country western style. I could go the bum 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 chickadum 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 bum 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 chickadum chickadum bum bum bum. Jesus died on the cross for me, and Jesus died on the the bum bum bum. Jesus, I could do that, right? Best podcast ever. <laughs> I swear, this is amazing. But I could also write a piece of choral music where it's no instruments at all, say, mm-hmm. and it's just the voices of redeemed souls mm-hmm. singing in harmony with each other without any beat at all. Like they're just they're just sort of disembodied souls now, you could even think. I, this is only one way to do this. Sure. Not a, you, there are a million good ways to do this. But you could write a choral piece that has sort of interwoven... Uh, Sounds of like the angels singing or the or the redeemed soul singing, you know, uh, that Jesus died on the cross for me, for me, for me, for me. I wrote a piece. Actually, this reminds me of a piece I did write. I wrote in the creed, uh, in the, the Nicene Creed. There's a line uh, that um, uh, uh, Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Crucified for uh, for us, yeah, under Pontius Pilate. And it's this. It's part of the the in Latin. It's a crucifixus uh, pro nobis sub Pontio Pilato, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Well, I in the in the. It's a very tragic sounding piece of music that I wrote for this chorus and keyboard, mm-hmm. and and uh, 
the, the chorus sings um, uh, crucifixus pro nobis, and when they get to the, to the climax of it all, they've said the whole line several times, but in the climax of the music, I re- have them repeat pro nobis, pro nobis, pro nobis, pro nobis, pro nobis, over and over again. For us, for us, for us. I can't believe it. You know, it's overwhelming that he would do this thing for us. We are the recipients of this grand, right. you know, thing. Okay, so I could, because I can write, a cr- I can craft the music the way I want to, I can have them sing that as many times as my aesthetic sense tells me gets the point across right. you see and uh, but if i'm restricted to the kind of chorus verse chorus verse chorus thing of a pop song i'm not allowed that if i'd, I'd be breaking free of that what's more i don't want the pro nobis part to be to be associated in anybody's minds with anything that's happening right now in music i don't want it to be a you know a certain beat might remind you of a of a led zeppelin song you heard or something i don't know sure um, or Katy perry or maybe more likely beyonce or something i'm showing my age <laughs> but, i think you um, showed your age when you said perry como but anyway <laughs> <laughs> okay. um but okay. b- b- uh, what I wanted was to break free to, to some sort of a- attachment or touch with the transcendent You see, I wanted to get out of the time-bound world and somehow bring us to a a transcendent moment of this recognition of this tremendous gift. So I I was able, because I was free of any style, I could do it the way I wanted to, Mm. I felt free to to do it the way, you know, I felt like it needed to be done. And um, So anyway, I guess I want, what I really long for is for people, first of all, not to think that the worship service is for the per- the people themselves. It's for the purpose of worshiping God. And so the thing that we craft for the, that we call a worship service is something that we're offering as a people to God. It's right. not something that we're offering the unbelieving world, right. first of all. So I think that's, that's, a, that's probably a divine, defining aspect uh, in my theory compared to the rest of the world. The rest of the evangelical world I'm talking about. Um, but secondly, I think we don't want to offer a blemished lamb. Mm. What I mean is we ought to be offering the best we have, the best lamb we have. Mm. And so all the things you mentioned about studying your instrument and studying theology and studying uh, uh, tradition of music and so on, to be able to combine all those things together is what you need to have in order to offer the very best we've got, right? Mm. Now, this is not a condemnation of people who have a, a, a small church and the best they can do is mount a guitar player up there and sing songs. That's all right. If that's the best you can do, that's what God wants. He wants our best. He doesn't. I'm not trying to make a case for God rejecting it unless it's of a certain caliber. Mm-hmm. It's not God. I'm actually. It's not try, I'm not trying to please God. God is already pleased with us. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right. even for composers, <laughs> right, <laughs> or performers, singers, whatever. Um, but there is a place for our hearts giving the best that we can give. There's something. There's something. You know, when when David said uh, it was given a whole bunch of animals. Uh, that he could sacrifice, and he, and he, at one point in the in the Old Testament, and he says, um, "I reject them. I'm not going to do that because." And his reason was, "I don't want to offer God anything that didn't cost me something." Hmm. Yeah. I, I want to get back to that idea. 
Man. That this cost us something. We had to study for it. We had to work at it. This is an offer. Something about what you're about to say there made me think of something that was going around in my brain. I I, I wasn't sure if I would use it as devil's advocate or if I would just say it because I'm not sure how confront how contrary it is. Sure. When I That's think right. of when I think of worship, I see it as a parallel to like prayer, which maybe because like worship is a prayer. A prayer is an act of worship in and of itself. Right. Um. I've seen a parallel between like worship and prayer. Sure. Right? Like maybe because like prayer is an act of worship in itself. That's but right. the, mainly the idea that there's this notion, it's a very traditional notion, it's a very long-standing notion, and we hold to it, that prayer is not prayer is not about you changing God's mind or something like that. Prayer is about a relationship between you and him, and it's really about you in a way. Mm-hmm. If you understand what I mean. It's like it's about changing your heart and changing right. your mind. In that way, prayer is about you, right? See the quotation marks I'm making with my <laughs> yeah, with hands? Your fingers, those rabbit ears. Right, right, right. Okay. In the same way, worship, it was like you were saying, we're offering it to God, but God doesn't need it. No. He's, he's got all the glory he's ever going to need. It's not like we're adding something to him and he needs it. Like, what was, uh, you know, it's not like a, fuss, like of a fussy person who just like wants a bunch of attention thrown on themselves all the time or something. Like that. Right. He doesn't need her. It's like it's weird. He doesn't need our worship, which makes me feel like the same principle applies. Yes. That the worship is about us, quotation yeah, marks. Again, right. it's in about, that uh, in that sense, it's about changing, transforming our hearts and about transforming our minds in some way. And I feel like the reason I want to bring it up and the reason why I was thinking maybe it was Dead Fool's Advocate is I could feel some very well-intended and smart contemporary, not contemporary, just just a worship person okay? sure. doing it, sure. saying that, you know, worship is about transforming us. Therefore, if we don't, this goes all the way back to the first thing we said about like it's this weird balance or proportion or something between like mm-hmm. recognizing that our experience is there and it's a part of it even though it's not necessarily the point somebody could argue back that worship is about transforming us and therefore it is about our experience of it and our experience does matter and if the music becomes too transcendent or too sort of focused on just you know trying to be this perfectly crafted thing and forgets how people feel then it's not going to be transformative and I understand the power and the weight of that because I agree with the idea that worship is about that worship transforms us in mm-hmm. the act of doing it. Mm-hmm. But what would you say back, or what would you say anything back, or would you contradict, or would you do, what would you say sure. to that idea that if worship doesn't take into account how people's experience of it is, yeah, if yeah. it doesn't take into account the experience, then that transformative aspect's not going to happen because if it's a work that feels it could feel detached from you because it's like a poppy solo song that you're disjointed from. It could feel detached from you because it's a highbrow, high flu, super yeah, lofty thing that just that is doesn't just, make any sense. That yeah. doesn't make any sense to you. That sure. doesn't mean anything to you. Sure. What would you say? What would you say to that charge that we have to take into account people's experience of it because there's that transformative aspect that's in it? That's an excellent point, and you're right. I, I tried to leave that door open when I said that. The purpose of the worship service is is has another facet than the concert hall. The the, the, the choosing of the of music for the concert hall is for the purpose of playing something for people to contemplate. The purpose of music in the worship service has this this involvement mm-hmm. of the people. Right, you're supposed to be crafting something that actually 
it has a it has a, a, a well, it's not exactly an aesthetic question. It's a question of the the sort of understanding of the ability of the people to sing it back, mm-hmm. to be able to be involved with it, and that could mean. Uh, stylistically, it could mean uh, in the way the melodies are written, crafted, maybe all. The, so it could go against popular music. It could go against classical, sort of what we call classical music. Sure. Um, so I'm with you there. I think there is that facet, and you have to consider what it is people can relate to and understand, and so on. I remember when I first started working for Second Pres, I was talking to the pastor there, and he was offering me this job, and I said, I'm not sure that I, I'm right for this job. I, I want to talk to you about that. And I said, because I'm very concerned about the fact that uh, people's preferences seem to dictate, in the church in, in general, I wasn't just talking about my church, but church in general, uh, that people's preferences seem to have such a high place in the choice about music and all that, because it's a very complicated issue that way. And, uh, and I said, I don't want to, I don't want to um, leave them where they are. I don't want them to just, I don't want to give them what they already know so that they're comfortable. I'm interested in giving them something that will make them stretch, make them reach a little, you know. And he immediately said back to me, uh, yeah, but you have to meet them where they are. And it's kind of your point here, I think, that they that they are of a certain musical uh, level of understanding. Not everybody went to music school, in other words, right? Sure. That's, under, that's normal. I didn't go to physics school, so the phys- physics guys can talk about their their world and leave me in the dust well in this case you can't afford to leave me in the dust the whole point of it is to bring them along right to have them be engaged so you can't just you can't just do choose music that's you know obscure palestrina motets that nobody's ever heard before in in a foreign language and expect that the people are going to be able to use that to worship god that was understood. So we went back and forth and back and forth, basically with me saying, I just don't like the idea of, of appealing to their, their preferences and leaving them there. And he said, and I just don't like the idea of talking over their heads. Mm. You know. So I finally said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll meet them in my choices and crafting of music and so on. I'll meet the congregation where they are if you will allow me not to leave them there. And he said, that's what I want. And so we shook hands and I took the job. But it was because of that very issue that I was thinking, I don't think I want to do this job. And because I think I hear people without any musical training saying it doesn't make any difference what you sing. And then I hear people with great deal of musical training saying it doesn't make any difference if the congregation likes it. <laughs> See, <laughs> both of so, which sounds very stupid. <laughs> it does. It can't be right. If, if, because it's because it throws out the whole idea of community and the aspect of, of corporate worship and so on. In a way, it throws out the idea of incarnation. Hmm. I mean, I mean, well, think about it. It's like that idea of you know, uh, well, I don't care if they like it or not. It's like, I mean, you, you are the word, way I was thinking is that you said, I will meet them where they are, but I won't leave them there. Right. That's an incarnational kind of thing. It's like Jesus came down. Oh, I see what you mean. To where yes. we are. Okay. Right. He didn't, case, he didn't come down in like a blaze the first time at least. He didn't come down in like a blaze of glory, showing all his transcendent loftiness like God on Mount Sinai did, yes, you know, where right. you can't look upon me, Moses, and live type of thing. He came as a man who could ostensibly get sick and get hurt and who yes. had to eat and who had to go to the bathroom and do all this stuff. Sure. He met us where we are, but he didn't leave us there. Amen. And that kind of, that that I guess that's kind of the balancing act that has to happen. Because I feel like, sometimes I feel like between people of good faith, both Christian faith and just you know, in the general sense idea, both people of good faith and goodwill 
fall on either side of that issue in some right. way. Right. And they, it's like trying to find that balance. There's those that kind of lean more towards the other side of it, the kind of lofty, transcendent side of it, that are in that genuinely want God's transcendence and the loftiness and the power and the glory of it all to be represented and to maintain and for it not to be lost. Sure. And the danger is to fall into that disconnect where I don't even care what the audience feels about it. On the other side, you have people who really care that we have to reach people. Like, that we have to, we have to be, this is about them coming together in worship and you have to bring them into that. That's right. And, and we can't the, leave them the behind. That's the shepherd's heart. That's the right. pastor's heart. But the temptation for them is to, like, well, we'll do whatever it takes for It doesn't matter. Like, how, what we, if, if all they like is, you know, stuff that's no, if all if what they're comfortable with and we'll just keep them comfortable and we don't, like, break in anything at all. Both of those ways seem to be part of the like part of the incarnation, and yet have temptation to draw away from it if they pull away from each other. Right, right. And it's somehow trying to find that kind of proportion between the two. It used to be, as I said, that the music of the church was something that everybody recognized as worthwhile, and enough enough people at least could relate to it that. If someone new came into it, or if somebody uh, inexperienced came into it, he thought in a kind of humble way and said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this and and learn this, and you know, I'm gonna learn these hymns, and I'm gonna get to know the the liturgy of the church and so on along the way." Rather than insisting that as I come to church, it has to be the way I want it to be, right? right. Um, uh, so, but what happened is in the beginning of the 20th century, you have music that departs from, it's already sort of departed from God, but now it's departing from the idea that it even needs to make an emotional impact on its listeners, uh, like Wagner and Mahler and Bruckner did. Well, uh, and Richard Strauss going into the 20th century. And uh, as a result, that sort of post-Nietzschean world where there's no transcendent universals anymore to speak to, not even the universal of human nature, mm. then music continues among great composers. It continues to, to explore you know, the new, the progressive, the, 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 the next step. And Schoenberg comes up with atonal music and on and on. Mm. But what happens is you leave the general population behind. They're not interested. They can't relate to it anymore. Right. And so it ends up middle of the century. It's just very obscure composers talking to each other and it's no longer actually speaking to the congregation, not only the congregation, the general public. Well, that means that at the same time then, the people wanted music. They actually started crafting their, a kind of folk music and eventually leads to popular music that becomes the rock and roll, the, the blues and then the rock and roll of the 50s and then so on through the days the, since then right. uh, that we call popular music. Right. Um, and that music retains something of that connection, that eight, 19th century connection to romanticism that is a connection to the, to, to the people to, uh, and to their feelings. So music is meant to be expressive it's meant to be emotionally um, expressive, and uh, uh, the music of Mozart was was something else. It was it was intended to be um, well, it was expressive in its own way, but it was also very formal and rarefied and orderly and 
and it was intended to be beautiful. Um, the aesthetics of it were the beauty of the form of it. Mm-hmm. Now, the 19th century, the, the aesthetic is the beauty of the, of the expression of it, you see. Mm-hmm. And that's what they retain. And so when we get to rock music in the 50s and 60s and 70s and so on, it's, it's all about love and it's all about energy and it's all about being, you know, anti uh, the, your political opponent. You see right. that a lot in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, but beyond that, it becomes about, uh, you know, sex and, and love and, and, you know, emotional things like that. And that's how popular music has been basically ever since. So since it's about that feeling stuff, if we in the church start imitating that, that aesthetic in our music, uh, then it's not surprising that we assume that the music needs to move people in people's hearts, mm-hmm. right? And and eventually, I think it's tempting. It doesn't always happen this way. I'm not trying to d- dismiss an entire style here. But I think a lot of times we inadvertently substitute an emotional experience that's manipulated by the music for an actual con- connection with God. Sure. Uh, we do feel an emotional connection with God, and that's what we're longing for, right? We want to be right. one with Him and so on. But it's easy to sort of substitute a, a feeling that comes from a particular chord progression or a particular form of rock music or something that's going to... And, oh, wait, <laughs> before I go into rock things, rock music, there is orchestral music that's written this way. Yeah. Okay? You can write a piece for orchestra, and it's just, it has all these cliches in it that are meant to move the audience to tears at a particular climax or whatever. And composers are good at doing that. So this is this is not associated with a, a, only a style in my mind. Mm. It's associated with a particular way of thinking about the purpose of music. And music uh, is, is, in my mind, is meant to, um, to express... The, to, to be a to be a form through which the content of the music can be expressed. So there's a kind of beautiful form that uh, relates to the to the words that are being sung or the moment that's being de- depicted. It could be without words. Right. Anyway, I I'm rambling now, but I I I, I want to connect up to something that's going on that I think is actually pulling us away from what we could have in our worship services. Uh, when we start thinking about what is the effect on the congregation of this music, I think we can slide away from the whole content that we're trying to get across, which is that we have to die to ourselves, including our musical preferences, which is how I started the podcast, you know, to, to, to take up your cross and die to yourself and then to say, and by the way, which kind of music do you like the best, seems a contradiction in terms to me. Right. Worship is something you join in with and to join into something necessarily to really join in with something necessarily means sacrifice. Roger Scruton said that acceptance is only possible through sacrifice. Right. That's the only way you are accepted into something is you're willing to lay something down. That's right. And worship is a stepping into the congregation where God is in their midst. Right. And that means that if, if the structure of it is not in some way where you have to lay something down, whether it's you know, a liturgy you have to learn, or the way the band is playing is a way that's constructed, you know, in a way to like glorify God and not appeal to your preferences all the time or something like that. Absolutely right. And I'm interested in the idea that we don't hold our preferences in these ways 
sacrosanct, mm-hmm. that they can't be violated, they can't be adjusted. Because uh, I think, as we teach here at the center, that the, that education is actually for the purposes of training a heart to love those things that are worth loving. It's not a matter of dismissing your heart or your head. It's a matter of putting them in contact with the transcendent so that they learn to love and think and reflect on the things that are really beautiful. We attach our hearts to loving those things that are worth loving. If I could say one thing about what I might offer as a solution. Okay, sure. I think that music of the 20th century and the early 21st century now uh, has has gone so far away from the average guy's appreciation that you can't simply try and take, you know, somebody who wrote a piece in in 19 you know 98 and expect that it's going to be like a symphony or something in mm-hmm. 1998. It's going to be expected expected to be understood by the congregation or choral music either for that matter. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of popular music that is cheesy and sentimental and and poorly composed and of its time and stuck in its time that's yeah. true too yeah it's hard to be contemporary because it's, it's like buying moving. a computer right as soon as you buy it it's obsolete right the it's next already one is already moving. that's right yeah. so uh, it's hard to be contemporary in the truest sense of the word but a lot of the music apart from it being you know tradi- uh, not no longer contemporary um it's it's poorly composed and you can go back and look at a lot of what we call old hymns and say the same thing mind you i'm not Mm -hmm. just picking on there are a lot of turn of the 19th century 20th century uh hymns that they call revivalist hymns that are really cheesy and really sentimental and really and i'm against those too okay but um because of the fact that high high classical music seems to have sort of priced itself out of the market and intellectually and uh, pop music, a lot of times, is repetitive and dull and, 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 frankly, not very well composed. What could we be doing in our worship services that would combine the, 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 uh, the good of, of a well-crafted piece of music and the good of accessibility to the congregation? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of folk music that does that. Yeah, I'm thinking about Celtic music, for example, or... Uh, American uh, Appa- uh, Appalachian folk music. Uh, uh, we call it bluegrass. Sometimes sure. there are other there are other kinds styles like that. Would jazz count? Jazz, jazz is so associated with with certain kinds of rhythms that are hard to sing. Oh, okay. Uh, and solo jazz is you, all about it, improvisation, and more about instrumentation than anything like oh, yeah. uh, the performance than anything else, right? You're thinking right. stuff that people right. can actually sing. That's what I'm after. Is okay. something that the congregation could join in on that would be well crafted and would be accessible. So, like a not jazz, but maybe like a spiritual or something like right. that. Right, okay. right. That would be folk music. That's okay. what I'd call folk music. Right, uh, black spirituals, um, uh, pieces of music that are. Uh, that are associated with certain kinds of um, uh, areas of the world, like mm-hmm. Ireland or Scotland or uh, uh, North Carolina and Tennessee. Frankly, is you the, know, is the, the Appalachians che- is the cheese of music. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like to, you to mentioned a few, yeah. a few podcasts ago. You mentioned yeah. that. That was a very good point. Well, I'm just thinking that that is both well crafted. They're well crafted, and they're expressive, and the meaning of the words and the meaning of the music go together see and it's also accessible to sing you can join in with them i'm thinking about for example i think a good celtic kind of uh song is um be thou my vision Mm. well 
if it's played on a mandolin and a guitar, it sounds like it it's belongs. right, you know, yeah. belongs. Yeah, it doesn't have to be played on the organ necessarily, uh, although it's okay there too. But but my point is not the instrumentation again. It's it's the craft of the melody and the craft of the uh, harmony and how the words and the harmony and the, all those elements of music fit together. So it seems to me that one of the solutions would be to think about that instead of instead of trying to blend high classical music on one side and and uh, and popular music on the other and put them in the same service um, which can it can work I'm not saying it can't work I understand there are people that have done it well I'd like to see uh, but instead of that I might I might choose to open the floodgates to all kinds of music and then pick the things that really I think fit best for our congregation in our moment mm-hmm. and I think you're going to find that everybody will relate to the folk music better than they will either of the other two. Remember my buddy, I said Brian, uh, when he was leading worship at a pretty major church around here, um, it was like his first time doing it and he like did some like standard contemporary stuff and it was very good. I think he threw in a classic hymn. But after the sermon, there's like a uh, a post-worship thing where you do a couple more things. And he did another contemporary song, but then he, that was very like somber and like, oh, feely and stuff. But then he said, you know, Jesus has saved us and like we've been redeemed and we need to get happy about it. And so he played like, um, uh, what can wash away my sin? Mm-hmm. And he did it like Nothing in this old, this either. old, and he said, well, I know we got a bunch of like Southern, like, you know, people in here, whether you be Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever. So, cause it was like a blended uh, denominational church. And he was like, I'm going to, so he played it like in this, Country's not the right word, but it was a very folksy kind yeah. of, you know, thing. Yeah. yeah. My gosh. Like, I bet it was powerful. Everybody was like, like, yeah. just got in on that. And like. That's what I'm talking yeah, about. I, I see what you mean. I understand. Everybody got on, like, everybody was on, really on board. Sure. Then. Like, was really on board in that moment. It like, and it was unexpected and it sh- people weren't expecting it, but they really latched onto it. So I, I get that. Well, uh, that's a good time to segue, I guess, into recommendations. Okay. We've been talking about music. Do you have a recommendation, something you want to recommend? Um, yeah, for people who would like to to think more about the, the place of music and the relationship of music and theology, there is a book by a friend of mine uh, called uh, Jeremy Begbie, uh, who wrote a book called Theology, Music, and Time. Mm. And it's pretty heady stuff, but it's very interesting, and his... Uh, his uh, background in theology and in music come together well to uh, to describe what music can be uh, when it's when it's focused. Well, the question I was gonna, uh, the question I was going to ask you is: Do you have any folksy kind of oh, music ideas in your brain, like an music? album or a band or a person or anything like that? If you need a moment to think, I, I my recommendations they are music. I do not posit them because they're folksy necessarily. Uh, and I don't posit them because everyone's going to think they're good. I think they're good. I think one is great. The other one is not bad. It's like it's pretty solid. Uh, the one that I think is, but, but both of them are basically uh, can technically be called worship albums, even though they're both vastly different in a way. So I'm going to recommend the one I think is solid. I think it's like I think it's good, but everyone else be the judge. Is that David Crowder band album I talked about? That's like all the stuff connected together. Oh, and yeah. they have like the, some old songs that they're doing contemporary style. It's called Church Music. Uh, Interesting. The, the album's called Church Music by David Crowder Band. Check it out. 
not whether you'll like it or not like it, but it's just listen to it. And you need to listen to the whole thing all the way through, all right? Because all the songs connect together and link up with each other. It's supposed to be like an entire thing. So you need to listen to the whole thing all the way through. So that one. The one I think is great, and this is just my bias showing through, and I want everyone to like listen to it and you make your own judgment. But I mentioned my favorite band before, My Epic, and they're like a hard rock band, but they're very... They're craftsmen at it, and they're like, and they're lyricists at it. They had an album they released a couple of years ago called "Behold," and I say it's pretty much it's like a worship album because every single song, all the titles of the songs, there's there's nothing necessarily in this except occasionally there's nothing in like the songs that say the title. The titles are titles of different kinds of psalms, like you know, like a a, a, a royal song or a, or a lament kind mm, of psalm. Mm-hmm. But the song that they sing is like based around like, well, here's a lament for this, or here's like. I'm going to talk about God's royalty or something like that in their own way. So they, all their songs are supposed to be structured around different kind of psalms, structured around this idea of wanting to get closer to God and eventually seeing him one day face to face. So wow. it's, a, it's an interesting album for those of you who like harder stuff, like a hard rock stuff. Uh, my Epic's album, Behold, is another good option. So those are my two recommendations. Dave Crowder Band's good. Church Music and then My Epic's uh, album, Behold. Check those out. Uh, anything on your end? If not, that's okay. I just was curious. I think I better wait and make recommendations for for specific tunes another time. There are plenty of people that are doing good work. It, I, I don't mean to say that. I, I just don't want to go on record as saying which one I want to offer. I'm kind of interested in people thinking about what it is that makes music good mm. and then applying it to their own spheres and it's going to be applied in different ways, different places, you know. And if I say this band is really good, or this this music, this song is really good, then I'm afraid I'll be implying that something that's not that band isn't good. Right. And I'm I'm reluctant to do that. But and I don't. I, nothing I've said on this podcast is an intended slight uh, of anybody's attempts to do the very difficult work of trying to put, you know, these these questions into practice in their churches. So uh, I hope I wish for everybody in their churches to be able to uh, to offer the best that they have to offer and be glad to do so, and uh, I know that God will be glad to hear it. So this is by no means a a slam of any one particular kind of anything, uh, but I do think it's possible to do music in a thoughtless way, mm-hmm. and to think that music is some kind of filler that we that we used to sort of stir up people's emotions or something. And I'm just against that idea. I think there's a lot more to it than that. Mm. And if we don't consider that in the churches, then we're actually undermining something of the beauty of God, I think. So that's a dangerous thing to do. Well, then we'll count that as your recommendation. Don't do My th- recommendation. Don't yeah. do thoughtless music. Don't do thoughtless music. That's right. Uh, that's all the time we got for today. Thank you for joining us once again on From the Center. Uh, we'll see you next week. 